We're going to read from Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 29. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this and I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. Amen. Thanks, Mike. I'm going to set this right here for one second and raise up our stand. Apparently, a short person got to this when I wasn't looking. Now Ashley's going to come in this week and lower it so that when she gives announcements, she doesn't look like a midget. That's all right. That's all right. So I am not by nature a list person. You might know this by just paying attention to me if, if you've known me for any period of time. Uh, I'm not naturally wired that way. I tend to like to move through the world just by feel, <laughs> just with, with, my, with just my feelings, uh, making a task list is something that I've grown to enjoy doing, and it's something that I've taught myself to do in order to be a productive member of society. But left to my own devices, I would not write a bunch of lists down. I would just kind of live my life, right, and go off the top of my head for the most part. In fact, very often when I make lists, uh, they make me feel bad. I think we all are familiar with this, right? When you make a task list, and you get to the end of the day and you look at that task list and task list and you realize that you've probably only completed roughly 50% of the things on that list and you go home feeling suboptimal is probably a good way of describing the way you feel at the end of that i hear that uh, in business kind of circles now people are saying that we shouldn't even make task lists in the same way that we tr have traditionally made them. What you need, to, what they say you need to do, is to make a list instead that is in line with the things that are most important, and then you, and then you kind of allocate your daily energy to the list of things that are most important. So if you say this is the most important thing, then I, I. I I allocate the majority of my energy for that day to that one thing. And the, the thinking is, is that if you get um, only two or three things done every day, but the things you get done are the most important things for you to do, then ultimately you will be a success. You might have missed a few phone calls or, well, I don't know, 
uh, forgot to pay a bill, which is not something we want to forget. But uh, if you do those types of things, at the end of the day, uh, you will be a success. And it makes sense, right? And I like this idea, but in the kind of day-to-day reality of our lives, most of us need a list in order to make ourselves feel effective, right? We need grocery lists. We have chore lists. I, we don't really make chore lists in our home, though Elliot did get a new, uh, a new magnet board so that he can start doing chores and earn Legos, I think, is what he's earning now. Dollars. One dollar per week. He thinks it's a lot of money. We hope to continue to, him, to help him believe <laughs> that that's a lot of money. But we need lists, right? We need chore lists. We need little magnet boards that tell us when we brushed our teeth from time to time. And this helps us feel, many of us, and if you're a list person, this most likely helps you feel like you have an ordered life, right? If you have an ordered task list, then it's possible that you feel like you have an ordered life. And if you have a disordered task list, if you don't know where you're going or what you're doing next, you might feel, particularly if you're a list person, that your life is in some real and true sense disordered, right? Now, growing up, I heard a lot of people talk about the order or the importance of their life in this kind of way, where they would make a list of the priorities in their lives, and then they would... uh, attempt to the best of their ability to structure their lives based around those priorities. So it goes something like this. If you've, if you've grown up around church at all, you hear this said from time to time. So the, on the priority list of my life, number one is God, you often hear. If you're married, number two is my spouse. And then if you have a family, it's my kids and maybe your dog or your boat or your job or I don't know. It, you can make the list as long as you want it to all the way down, Right. And to a certain extent, I think uh, this way of understanding our lives comes from this early church father named Augustine. Has anybody ever heard of Augustine? You can raise your hand if you've heard of him. He wrote this uh, really famous book in like the 450s, I think, called The City of God. And so, uh, and what Augustine says in this book is that the primary problem with the human heart is that we have what he calls disordered loves, so that our hearts are kind of disordered. And what he means by this is that God is the ultimate good, right? That God is the best good thing possible, and that everything else in existence is a lesser good. It's Very often it's a good thing, but it's a lesser good, and it flows from the hand of God and is meant to lead us back to him. This is Augustine's argument. So for Augustine, any time we love something for its own sake, any time we love something just because of it, rather than for God's sake, we are exchanging ultimate love, the love of God, for a love of something lesser, for a, for a lesser type of love. He says whenever we, we love something uh, lesser as though it were ultimate, We are loving a creature or the creation rather than the creator. In the city of God, Augustine says it this way. He says, these are thy gifts, they are good. For thou in thy goodness has made them. Nothing in them is from us, save for sin, when neglectful of order. We fix our love on the creature instead of on thee, the creator. Augustine wanted our love, our hearts, to be properly ordered because when things in our lives are disordered, all kinds of things go haywire, he believed. 
And so we think, if only I make a priority of life list and remind myself of that order of priority often, my life will go as it should go, right? If we just make a list and we make sure the right things are in the right order, then ultimately my life will flow naturally. It will be what it's supposed to be. But the prob- there's a problem with this. And the problem with this is that even Augustine uh, did not believe that simply by making a list and putting God at the top would we actually order our lives the way that God wants them to be ordered. Actually, Augustine knew that so many, uh, what so many other Christians know, that we can mentally understand something, right, that we can put it in our minds, that we know it up, up here, yet it does not actually work its way out into our lives because we don't believe it in our heart, right? We don't actually feel it in our emotions. We can put God first on our priority list, but until we come to love him that way, it does not really matter, right? It doesn't matter how you set up your list. If, if you don't actually love God the way, that way, it doesn't actually matter. Other things we love will naturally kind of slide up the priority list of our lives and begin to take that place. And in Paul's letter to the Colossians, I think one of the things he is trying to help these this, Colo- this small house church in Colossae to understand is that it's not just about seeing, uh, seeing life r- appropriately. It's not just about creating a good priority list. It's not just so that you can just be a good Christian, right? So that you can just do the right things and so that you can make sure that you have the right list. Last week, Paul taught the Colossians a hymn And he clearly wants them to remember this hymn that he teaches them. He wants it to get stuck in their head in some real and true sense. And this hymn, if you were with us, is all about how God or how Jesus is the image of God on the earth. And that Jesus is the one through whom our lives were intricately knit together. And on top of that, he is in the process of renewing and reconciling all of the cosmos back from its broken state of affairs. This is what Paul says to the church in uh, Colossians 1, 15 through 20. You see, I think for Paul, it is not so much about helping the church understand that Jesus is at the top of the priority list of our lives. And so then we just have to think or act accordingly to that priority list. No, I think for Paul, he sees the order of things in a slightly more holistic way. And this morning, I think I want us to help help us to see the order of our lives in a more holistic way than just a priority list. He wants the Colossians to see and understand, not with their minds, but with their hearts, right? That Jesus is not just another thing on the priority list. He is the very ground of being. He's the very ground of being and that everything from the smallest plant to humanity itself gets its life from him. And he is actually working to bring those dead and broken parts of our being back to life through his death and resurrection. No, I don't think that it's about a priority list per se, though I agree with Augustine that our loves are misshapen and disordered. I think Paul wants the church to come to a deeper understanding of the idea that Jesus is more like the sun around which everything in our lives should orbit than he is like a number on a list. 
Or that Jesus is like the soil out of, rich, out of which our lives grow up. And in Colossians 3, verse 4, Paul says this very clearly when he says, when Christ, who is your life, which is an interesting turn of phrase, isn't it? Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. You see, Jesus does not, I think, want to be a number on the list of our lives. He wants to be our very life. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says that that God is like the sun and that in and through the sun, we are in that in and through the sun, we are able to see everything in our lives more clearly. It It is as we stick close and embrace Christ as the creator and sustainer of our very lives that we are actually free to live this life anew and in the power of God's spirit. And in our teaching text for today, immediately following this great hymn, Paul wants to remind the church again about the importance of keeping Jesus at the center of this thing. He wants to remind this church that uh, they shouldn't move from the central reality that they have learned early uh, in their life as Jesus followers. He He doesn't want them to forget this reality. He wants to keep them connected to this life. And he longs for them to stay connected and to see the fruit of what happens in their life as they stay connected to the reality of the gospel. He wants to see that 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 fruit, that growth, that flourishing, that maturity is not a byproduct of making a list or gritting one's teeth so that we do the right things. It is more about being connected to the source of life itself. So today, what I want to do is simply walk through our teaching text, uh, focusing particularly on two uh, arguments or ideas that Paul brings out uh, of this passage, and then to kind of draw some conclusions for us today. To not just, uh, you see, Paul in, uh, if you have your Bibles, actually, turn them, grab them, grab your Bibles, people. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's, a, there's probably a Bible in the seat Uh, in the seat in front of you, underneath the seat, you can feel free to grab that and open up to Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 21. So this teaching text we have today is really jammed full of stuff. Uh, Paul, the book of Colossians is a short book. It's It's a relatively short book, but it's one in which Paul really crams a lot of information in. So anytime we take a, anytime we take kind of a swath or a number of verses out, we can't, in the 35 minutes we have, uh, on a Sunday morning, can't address it all in, in its nuance, but uh, we can look at the kind of broad strokes of what Paul is attempting to get at. And what I, the first uh, verses that I want to look at this morning are verses 21 and 22. So if you're looking there, uh, they read like this. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Now, like we said earlier, Paul has just finished this hymn, this poem, this early church song that he wants the church to to commit to memory. But after he does this, he quickly switches gears in the book because he wants to remind the church of something. And that thing that he wants to remind the the church about is their own sinfulness, right? Their own brokenness. 
he says, you have been cleansed from, uh, he tells them that they've been cleansed from their sin and they now stand before God in, in his language without blemish and free from accusation. And he seems to want to remind the church of this because they forget about that, right? They, they have forgotten this reality that they were this particular way. And part of the reason we know that they have forgotten this reality is because they have moved on from it, right? Paul says numerous times in this book that the, that the church at Colossae had, had moved on to try to gain more spiritual knowledge, or they had tried to move on to deeper things, and they had kind of sold out to um, religious cults of their day, or uh, they had been influenced by uh, Jewish Christians who wanted them to follow the law in a really meticulous type of way. And what Paul says is that uh, what you, that's, you don't need to move off of the reality of the gospel to those things, but what you need to do is to remember something, and you re- need to remember your, that you're sinful, essentially. You need to remember this fact. He wants to remind them that there is nothing greater than the understanding of the cleansing and freedom that they have received through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And do you know one of the worst possible things that can happen to someone who claims to follow Jesus with their life? Forgetting that they're sinful. Forgetting that they don't have their lives together. Forgetting that uh, they are in need of some help. Because when we forget that we are sinful, when we forget that we are broken, uh, and that we are saved through an act of grace, we become what the Bible often refers to as self-righteous people. We become self-righteous people. This is often why Jesus clashes with the religious leaders of his day in the Gospels, not because they tried to keep the law. God wanted the, pe- the Jewish people to keep the law, right? He tells them to do this over and over again. So it's not the simple keeping of the law that frustrates Jesus. Jesus kept the law. But the reason he clashes with them is because they are follow because of the way in which they are following the law. They became infatuated with their own righteousness and their own ability to follow the rules, and they believed that this made them in some way better than the people who they believed did not follow the rules as well as they did. And it seems some of this is creeping into the church at Colossae. And it can easily sneak into our religious natures as well. Uh, Brennan Manning was a Christian author. He was actually uh, uh, a priest. Uh, and he wrote a, uh, he wrote a ton of books, but a couple of his books that you might have seen carried in the Christian bookstore, if that's a place you go. Uh, I try to avoid it, to be honest with you. You can laugh. That's all right. Uh, the Ragamuffin Gospel he wrote, and he wrote a book called uh, The Furious Longing for God. Uh, like I said, Manning was actually a Jesuit priest. He, he went into the Jesuit order, but he found himself in some trouble, and I think he actually lapsed out of the priesthood at one point. Um, for much of his life, he struggled with alcoholism, and uh, much of his writing is kind of this raw... Um, excursion on that reality as he attempts to follow God, but very aware of his own brokenness. And in uh, the Ragamuffin Gospel, he says this, when I get honest, 
I admit I am a bundle of paradox. I believe and I doubt. I hope and I get discouraged. I love and I hate. I feel bad about feeling good. I feel guilty about not feeling guilty. I am trusting and suspicious. I am honest and I still play games. Aristotle said I am a rational animal. I say I am an angel with an incredible capacity for beer, <laughs> which is great. But it's when we forget the depths from which Christ rescued each of us and turn a blind eye to our own brokenness, right? And particularly uh, that that type of religious arrogance can sometimes creep in, isn't it? It's when we begin to ignore that we are a bundle of paradoxes. That's what we are. That we can trick ourselves into believing that our lives don't desperately depend on Jesus. But Jesus... Uh, instead is just uh, something, a person with whom we shake hands and make a deal, right? And then we can go about living our lives to the best of our ability. It's tempting to think, and we sometimes believe, right, that we uh, can manage our own lives, that we are not as bad as we actually are. You know, we all have this compulsion in our brains to see ourselves as better than we actually are, right? This is why you need people around you to tell you the truth. This is why marriage is, such, is very often such an effective tool uh, for helping you to become the person God would have you to be. Because if you marry an honest person, uh, <laughs> which I hope you do, uh, they will tell you the truth about yourself, and it will not always be flattering, will it? It helps us to see the reality of who we actually are. The church is hurt more by religious self-righteousness, I would argue, than anything else. And Paul is quick to remind us that uh, a salve to our own religiosity and our own self-righteousness is this ability to be acquainted with our own sin, to be acquainted with the reality of what we have been brought out of and who, uh, who we are. In, in the core of our being. And Paul says in verse 23 that this is the gospel, and we would be not wise not to move away from that reality on to some other thing. And really, for the rest of the passage, except this brief section in verses 24 through 25, where Paul talks a little bit about suffering and his suffering and how that has aided the church in some real and true sense, Paul keeps on reminding the church that they need to stay connected to Jesus, that they need to stay connected to Christ, and, it is act, and that it is actually through staying connected to Christ that Paul believes we grow. We grow. He begins this line of thought in, verses 20, in verse 23, uh, but he finishes it in verse 28 when he says this, he is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. Full maturity in Christ is the goal of the Christian life for everyone. Actually, Paul says it's the goal for everyone, right? But remember, full maturity is not to be found in self-righteousness. It's not to be found in these kind of external symbols or, or signifiers that we use to determine who is a good Christian and who isn't a good Christian, right? Who is a good person and who isn't a good person. Paul doesn't seem to believe that it, it comes from those types of things. Rather, it is to be found in Christ, in being 
connected to Jesus and having this kind of real and emotional connection to Jesus. Uh, the scholar N.T. Wright sums up this, this uh, argument of what, this idea that Paul is trying to get across when he says this. So this is reality. This is the truth, Paul says. This is what God is like. And now, if you continue in it, if you don't move from the central life-giving reality of the universe, then you will be connected to this gospel, this good news, this true reality. What Paul is saying here is that, in effect, uh, the, the effects of the gospel, the effects of the good news, don't happen automatically. They don't happen automatically. We don't get anything good in our lives automatically. Maybe if, if you're someone in here and you, like, won the lottery, you can leave because it just doesn't apply to you. Uh, Ashley and I are in the running for a minivan right now, and I literally mean in the running because we're entering sweepstakes to try and get a minivan. <laughs> I think, does everybody else do this? At, at, between like 10 and 12 at night when you're on your phone, you just are entering sweepstakes for things. Usually, usually for me right now, it's, it's minivans and bikes and the HGTV dream home. That, all, that one also counts. But you know what? I'm never going to win any of that. <laughs> Right? Because it, it tends to, a couple people will. But in general, this is just not how life works, right? Life just doesn't come at us that way. Anything good, anything of value takes, in some real and true sense, some effort on our part, right? It requires us to continue, as in the language of Paul, in the gospel, to grow or to work up into maturity. And this is, again, for Paul, not about following rules. It's about learning to live in the new world that Jesus has brought and is bringing. So learning to live in this new world that Jesus has brought to each of us and is bringing to the whole world. Have you ever learned a foreign language? Is anybody who knows a foreign language? You're very proud of it. That's good. Uh, do, does anybody know what, what we call somebody who only knows one language? An American, correct. That's the joke. Good one. Somebody knew that joke. Anyway, uh, when you... I've had multiple roommates from other countries through my college years, and they all spoke like four languages, and it just made me feel horrible about myself. Never hang out with a Dutch person, because they know like 15 languages. Anyways. If you've ever learned a language, uh, if you've ever learned a language, you know that the beginning part of the learning of a language is very, very hard. If, really, it makes your brain kind of feel like it's on red alert. Uh, I could have sworn when I was learning language stuff that my brain was burning more calories than the rest of my body because it's just very, very difficult at the outset. With language, there is this high level of effort that's required at the beginning and you need to kind of persevere through the difficulty of your brain trying to figure out these kind of uh, new verbal constructions and uh, new verb forms and uh, all of those types of things, right? How do you make something plural? That's always a great question when you're learning a new language, right? And eventually, what happens is that verb conjugation that you've been working on and working on and working on comes to the point where it just feels natural, right? And you hear it, and it just kind of makes sense. 
you have this high level of effort on the front end, but as you go with language, it just begins to make more and more sense. And every once in a while, you hear a vocabulary word with a uh, with some form of an ending that doesn't make sense to you, and you you have to process through that. But in general, the thing that started out feeling weird, right, didn't quite make sense when it was coming out of your mouth, now begins to kind of roll off the tongue. It kind of begins to make sense. And you're able to speak that language. And what Paul is saying here, I think, in some very real way, is that learning to live in Christ, to become mature in him, is like learning a new language. In a very real way, when we follow Jesus, we are learning a new way of living. We're learning a new language for life, actually. And uh, in the Bible, the lang- uh, we are told that this new language for life, learning this new way of live, is called living in the kingdom of God rather than living in the kingdom of the world. And it often feels hard, and it feels unnatural rolling off the tongue, like a new language often does. But over time, it becomes second nature to us. And Paul is saying, persevere, stand in, continue in this new way of existence. And what first feels unnatural to you and a little bit uncomfortable will begin to feel more and more like your true self. The kingdom of God will feel more and more like the home you were always meant for. So stand in, keep on, grow up, Paul says. And the work you begin here will be brought to total and complete, uh, will be made total and complete. You'll be brought into what he calls full maturity with Christ, the hope of glory, when he appears and sets everything right. Then all of the striving and the suffering and the real effort that it has taken to learn this new way of living will come full circle, right? It's like in the present, we are learning to make Jesus what he already is, which is the center of our lives. There's this really great song. We've sang it a few times, I think, haven't we? Uh, Jesus, have we we sang Jesus at the center here? Well, we haven't, but it's a really great song, and let's do it later. See, this is how how Jocelyn and I get through this. Um, uh, It's a song of hope, really, if you've ever heard it. It's because right now we don't, we don't actually see the reality that Jesus is at the center of the universe, right? Paul has just got done in verses 15 through 20 of chapter 1 talking about how God is the creator, the sustainer of our very lives, that he is everything in everything. He is, he is the center of our existence. Yet, we don't always see that, do we? Very often it feels like the center of my existence is the construction that's happening outside of our church and the weeds that are growing up through the cracks in our, in our driveway. This oftentimes, and my daughter who paints her entire left leg with nail polish on Friday mornings, uh, these things feel like the center of my existence, right? These things feel like the reality within which I am living. And Jesus does not always feel like the center, does he? It requires some level of hope some level of perseverance to come to the acknowledgement that, yes, in fact, Jesus is the center of it all, that he is the king and creator of my life and of everyone's life. And everything, everything came from him and everything is heading back to him. This 
is not an easy thing to believe. But this is why Paul says we need to persevere in the gospel. This is why we hope. We are called by the gospel to live now, to live in our current environment with all of its brokenness and all of its partiality in anticipation of the world that Christ is bringing this way. And we don't do that in self-righteousness. We don't do that by simply mentally telling ourselves over and over that Jesus should be the top of our priority list. We do this by letting the reality and the beauty of who Jesus is and what he has done for us sink in. We do this uh, as we acknowledge the chained, uh, that, we, that we were chained to death and brokenness. That we, that we were, and in some real, real and true sense, are still hindered or shackled by things that keep us, um, that keep us down, really. We do it by learning to speak a language that isn't, to be honest with you, our native language. We do it by learning the language of the kingdom. And we learn that language by loving Jesus, by staying connected to him, by remembering where he brought us from. And so Paul says to the church at Colossae, stand in, persevere, continue to, lo- uh, to live and learn this kingdom language and know and believe in hope, in hope that Jesus uh, is bringing a new world to bear on this old and broken one. God's plan for each of us is not for us to be kind of uh, half-heartedly structure our lives in such a way as the, so that they appear mildly religious. This is not what God wants for any of us. God's plan for each of us is that we would continue in Christ until we reach full maturity and our tired and restless ways fall off like shackles on the ground and Jesus is revealed in all the earth for what he already is in our hearts, the Lord and the King. This is what Paul is calling the church at Colossae to, and this is what they so easily, easily forgot. It happens to be everything, right? If Jesus is the very ground of being, he's the very soil from which uh, our lives spring up, if he is all and all, if he is the alpha and the omega, if he is that, why do we so often forget? Why are we so often pulled left and right by different things? Why are our hearts so partial? Why are we a conglomeration of paradoxes? Why why is my heart the way that it is so often? Why is my mind so often carried away by visions of riding my bike when I'm preaching? Because Ragbri started this morning, and I'm going there in a day. Why is that? Well, it's because we live in a world that's broken. But Christian hope is not a belief that, uh, that I will win that minivan that we've entered two times a day for the last three weeks. It is not a belief, it is not a belief that we will 
have a perfect life and that everything will be happy. Christian hope is the belief that God is forming us in the character of Jesus as we stay connected to him and that Jesus is bringing a world to this broken one now, that he is bringing a new world to this one and that he is in the process, as Paul says at the end of that great hymn, he is in the process of reconciling all things back into himself. This is Christian hope. And we cling to it even when things are dark, even when things are broken, even when things don't feel right, even when the language of the gospel, the, the, the life lived in the kingdom doesn't feel to us like it's very natural. We cling to this hope because we've encountered a, a person in the person of Jesus who kind of tethers us or roots us to the source of life itself. And we can go spinning off at times. We can lose sight of that reality. But when we stay connected to Jesus, when we stay in the vine, in a sense, when we stay connected to the source of life, we are uh, reassured, right? We are, we are brought back to the reality of who is at the center of the cosmos, the, the, the sun around which our lives orbit. And even though we live in a world where... Uh, the circumstances of our day-to-day lives don't often point to that reality. Hope is the Christian belief that that is the case. And connection to the Jesus, to the source of life, is the assurance that it is true. And what Paul is calling the church at Colossae too, and what I believe he's calling all of us today too, is to stay connected to see Jesus as the center of our lives, as to see Jesus as the progenitor of our lives, the one from whom our lives spring forth. And as we do that, we learn to live like him. We learn to love like him. We learn to be generous like him. And we learn the language of the kingdom of God. And that transforms us, and it transforms the people around us. And it's this beautiful, beautiful thing. And we can't forget our brokenness. And we can't, forget, uh, we can't forget the fact that we are not always what we should be, because that's part of the gospel too, remembering that reality. But the primary reason we remember that is so that we can step into fellowship with other people who are just as broken as we are. Anyone who claims that they are religiously superior, that they, that they claim some level of knowledge or truth that other people don't have or don't have access to, is simply depending upon their own selves and don't, and don't see themselves the way they actually are in the world they actually live in. And that type of self-righteousness, I think you and I can all agree, is a really off-putting thing. What we all desire, what we all want, is for a, a genuine people to come alongside one another in a genuine way and pursue the reality of Jesus, pursue the way of Jesus together. And this is what a church is. And so Paul is reminding this church in the way that he has reminded so many other churches of this central reality, that to grow in Christ, to be ushered into maturity in Christ, to maintain and to hold onto hope, to put away self-righteousness and religiosity, the key to all of that is to stay connected to the source, to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, uh, We confess that in so many ways, uh, we do not stay connected to you. We acknowledge our brokenness and our sin. We acknowledge and remember all the ways in which we fall short. 
We don't revel in those things as good, Father, necessarily, but, but we acknowledge that that is who, in, in large part, who we are. But we also believe and we hope and we strive to become more like your son, Jesus. Would you help us to do that this morning? Would you help us to stay connected to the source, to Jesus, to the one uh, by whom and through whom our lives uh, may, were created and make sense, are coherent? Jesus, would you be with us? And would you help us to love you more? Would you help us to not just uh, know cognitively? Would you help us to not just mentally assent to the reality that you are the center of the earth, but would we feel it deep down in our bones? And would that transform the way we act and live? Would that transform the way we treat people, the way we engage with love in our community? Would it soften our hearts and make us your people? Jesus, teach us to live in your kingdom. Teach us the new language of the kingdom of God, that we might be your people and that you might be our God. And above all, we believe and we hope as you reconcile the broken parts of our world back into yourself. We pray it all in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Go today in the grace and in the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ.